aren't you glad that our God is one who holds the future? That because Jesus Christ lives, he reigns, he rules, our lives, our future, it's all in his hands. And uh, that's the truth that we're going to see emerge from these chapters that we're going to begin looking at uh, as we continue our study through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. So if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and uh, be turning and finding your place in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, You know, technology really is a wonderful thing. When you think about it, all of us benefit from technology. Uh, I know that technology in the wrong hands can be used for evil purposes, but technology itself is neither good nor bad, but it's morally neutral. It's, It's what is done with that technology that matters. But all of us benefit from technology. You know, you've got that smartphone that you probably have in your pocket. Some of you may be reading your Bible on it right now. Uh, But you think about all that that thing can do and the technology that's contained within that little device. It can be used as a communication device with which you can call someone and talk to someone via phone call. Uh, You can use it to text someone and send a text message to a friend. Uh, It's a mini computer. You can ask Google a question, uh, and you can find all kinds of answers. Uh, You can check email and send email. But you know, perhaps the most common feature of that smart device that you now use, it's the camera app. Uh, Most of us use our phones now to take pictures when we're on vacation, to take pictures of our family. Uh, And so the camera app has become a very important uh, app on smartphones. On mine, I've got an iPhone, but I have an option to be able to take a panoramic shot of something. Now, I don't always do this, but uh, to give you an example, a couple of months ago, our family was out in the state of Colorado. Uh, We were doing some hiking We were coming off of a trail, and the trail just opened up into just this beautiful valley. Uh, Both sides of the valley were just these majestic snow-capped peaks, and I couldn't just get a single shot of that valley. I had to take a panoramic shot because I wanted everybody who saw that picture to sort of be able to take in, to some degree, what I had witnessed in just that awesome sight. And so a panoramic picture is one that helps you get a wide angle on something. A panorama itself is a complete survey or presentation of a subject or sequence of events. So with that in mind, I want you to look here at Daniel chapter 7 as we continue our study through this Old Testament book. We've been in this book for some time. And now our study through Daniel brings us to this pivotal chapter. Uh, The seventh chapter of Daniel is one of the most important uh, prophetic chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, it serves as sort of a grand sweep of human history from the time of Daniel, who's living in exile there in Babylon, all the way to the future return of Jesus Christ to the earth, where he's going to establish his kingdom. You know, someone has well said that prophecy is history written in advance. If you want to know what's going on in the world, then it's important that you be a student of the Bible. And it's important that you understand what Bible prophecy says 
uh, especially about end times, last things. Uh, John Walvoord is a prophecy scholar, but he said that the vision of Daniel here in this seventh chapter uh, provides us with one of the most comprehensive, detailed prophecies of future events to be found anywhere in all of the Old Testament. You might could say that what we find in Daniel 7 is a panoramic view of history, again, spanning from the time of Daniel all the way to the return of Jesus. And so this seventh chapter is going to begin a new section in the book of Daniel uh, from chapter 7 all the way through the close of chapter 12, the end of the book. Uh, This is the prophetic section of Daniel. It's a section in which Daniel records a series of visions that he received from the Lord concerning future events. Now, it should come as no surprise to you uh, to know that interest in the doctrine of last things, a big fancy word for that is eschatology, interest in last things is at a fever pitch right now, especially within the church. You, You consider all that we've sort of been dealt in 2020. You know, 2020, ironically, is the year that none of us saw coming. But you know, God saw it coming long before it ever stepped onto the scene. But the world around us is in a state of upheaval. This is not just true for the church. Uh, The church has been in an upheaval. We're having to navigate the waters of ministry and do some things that we never thought we would ever have to do. But the world around us, society, seems to be in an upheaval. Add to that the fact that we're in an election cycle. And that the presidential election this year, I mean, the debates seem to be more of a, an MMA cage match than a debate between two statesmen. And it all just sort of is evidence of the fact that we're in a chaotic time. Both in society, in the church, the world around us seems to be churning with chaos Jesus said that before his return, there would be signs so that we would not be caught off guard. In that great passage, Matthew chapter 24, known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus teaches his disciples about last things and what they could anticipate. The disciples ask him a question, tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And that word sign that they use there uh, translates a Greek word that means distinguishing characteristics, a token indication of something. They're saying, Jesus, tell us what will be the token characteristics that you're about to come back to the earth and establish your kingdom. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus quotes from the book of Daniel as he then gives them an explanation of what they could anticipate just over the prophetic horizon. So you look back to where we've been in our study of Daniel up until this point. The first six chapters are biographical in nature. And what I mean by that is that chapters one through six are narrative history, where Daniel is telling us about some things that happened in his life as he was living his life there as an exile in Babylon. Chapter 1, you remember, uh, he was taken from Jerusalem as a captive. Uh, He was a teenager. By the time you get to the end of chapter 6, he's an old man uh, who is in perhaps his early 80s, 
So some 70 years of time span Daniel chapters 1 through 6. And these chapters are chronological. They tell a story. Well, beginning in chapter 7, going all the way through chapter 12, uh, we're no longer in the narrative section of the book, but rather we're in the prophetic section of the book as Daniel begins telling us about some visions that God gave him while he was there in Babylon. And so from chapter 7 through 12, you can't read that chronologically because you'll notice as chapter 7 begins, he's taking us all the way back to the first year of King Belshazzar. You remember he died in chapter 5. So chronologically, the events of chapter 7 happen before the events of chapter 5. But it's important that you understand the second half of Daniel, the last six chapters, these are the prophetic chapters. They constitute what's called apocalyptic prophecy. Now, you know what that word apocalypse means, don't you? Uh, you hear that word often, and often we associate the word apocalypse with the end of the world. Well, apocalypse is, is a transliteration of a Greek word, apocalypsis, that means unveiling. It's the word that's used in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John. The word revelation translates that word apocalypsis. It means unveiling. So when we're talking about the apocalyptic literature of the Bible, we're talking about prophecy that unveils the sequence of events that will lead up to the end of the age and the return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. The apocalyptic passages of the Bible deal with future events. They emphasize God's plan for the future. And in so doing, they... Uh, they use shocking imagery, and you're going to see that in just a moment as we begin reading from this seventh chapter. Alistair Begg has said that the apocalyptic passages of the Bible are intended to be literary shock treatment to jolt us from our complacency, and from our lethargy. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it easy to get spiritually complacent in my life. I find lethargy, drowsiness to be something that is easy for me to, it's easy for me to want to get caught up with all that's going on in the world around me. It's easy for us to want to kind of live our life on autopilot and we're sort of reacting to the circumstances of life rather than being proactive disciples who know what's just over the horizon. And that's why the apocalyptic, prophetic passages of the Bible are so very important, because they jolt us from our drowsiness. They remind us as the followers of Jesus that we're not home yet, that we had better not get too comfortable in this world, because Jesus Christ is coming, and he's going to establish a kingdom, a kingdom that will have no end. So the reason that so much of the prophetic passages of the Bible use such shocking and graphic imagery, it's, it's this, uh, through the use of language, uh, the biblical writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is trying to describe that which is indescribable so that we might comprehend that which is incomprehensible. And so it's important to keep this in mind as you read the book of Daniel, especially this seventh chapter. Now let me tell you this. Uh, prophecy is not given simply as a matter of intrigue. Now all of us are full of intrigue when it comes to Bible prophecy. You know, we want to know details. 
We want to be able to put everything in a nice, neat little chart and put it in our study notes and our study Bible and be able to have prophecy conferences and prophecy charts and all of this stuff. But you know, Bible prophecy was not given for the sake of you being able to mesmerize everyone with your prophetic knowledge. Wasn't given to satisfy our curiosity. Prophecy was not given even to answer all of the questions that we may have. There are just some things that God has not given us the details on. But what he has given us, what he has revealed to us, is his plan for human history. And when it looks like human history is traveling in the wrong direction, when it seems like the world around us is spinning out of control, Bible prophecy is such that it provides God's people with future hope so that they can live their lives with present confidence. And so the ultimate goal then of Bible prophecy is to fill your heart as a believer with worship for Jesus Christ, that you might live your life in awe, in obedience, and surrender to the one who is in control of prophecy, the one who is in control of future events. Now, this is the message of Daniel chapter 7. So if you've got your Bible there, I want you to look with me, uh, beginning in verse number 1. Let's begin looking at this seventh chapter. Verse 1 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now listen, use your sanctified imagination as you're reading this, okay? Uh, pay close attention to the imagery, the shocking graphic language that Daniel is using to describe what he saw. He says, four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then I looked as its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. The beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So Daniel's saying, look, I saw coming out of this, this sea, this churning sea, I saw four beasts. The first one, it's like a lion with eagle's wings. The second one is like a bear raised up on one side, kind of lopsided. The third is a leopard that had the wings of a bird and four heads. So this, these are some pretty crazy images. I mean, these are more like monsters than animals, but they have uh, animal traits. Well, notice in verse 7, he says, After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. 
And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So this last beast, this fourth beast, uh, was so unlike the other three that there really was no comparison to anything else as far as the created order. If the first beast could be compared to a lion with eagle's wings and the second one a bear and the third one a leopard, this fourth beast, there's no comparison as far as the animal kingdom is concerned. This is simply a terrifying, monstrous beast that Daniel sees emerging from the sea. Now, verse 9, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Now immediately the scenes changed, hadn't it? Now we're in the throne room of heaven. Now we're in the courtroom of eternity. And the Ancient of Days has taken his seat. This is God the Father who is ruling in sovereign power over all. Verse 11, he says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire, as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Wow. That's a shocking dream that Daniel has. I want to stop reading there. But the second half of the chapter, Daniel is going to be given an interpretation as to what these beasts represent. And he's going to be told down in verse number 17 that the beast represent four kings or four kingdoms that will arise out of the earth. And so all of this is a vision of future empires that will span the Gentile nations and Gentile history from Daniel's day all the way up until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to establish a kingdom upon the earth that will never end. And so in this sense, all of this is future prophecy. How did Daniel respond to it? Was he intrigued by it? No. Verse 15 and verse 28, Daniel says that he was terrified by all that he saw. Simply because he understood the significance behind it. The fact that uh, this, is, this is prophetic. What a fearsome image this is of the one who is truly seated on the throne. The king of heaven. And often I think about how nonchalant we are when it comes to worship and how casual it is that we want to worship and approach the throne of grace. Let me tell you something. If that's your attitude, you better read this passage again, my friend. Because the God of heaven, if you truly saw him in all of his glory, you would instantaneously be blown to smithereens. 
We sing so nonchalantly, show us, show us your glory. Well, if God did that and he showed us sinful human beings his glory, I can't help but think we'd be absolutely terrified just like Daniel is here in this passage. So what we have here is a panoramic view of human history. It's a panoramic view of prophecy. And so I want to speak from that subject as we begin looking at this seventh chapter. Prophecy and panorama. Uh, The message that the Most High God is seated upon his throne, exercising dominion over present events. This was a message that was greatly needed in Daniel's day, especially by those exiles who were living in Babylon. Uh, They no doubt were facing the temptation to believe that the world had fallen apart. They had been uprooted from all that they knew in Jerusalem. They had been uprooted from access to the temple. Uh, They had been transplanted in Babylon, living as exiles, surrounded by those that worshipped false gods, even facing persecution in Babylon. And I imagine they faced the temptation to believe that God and his kingdom were on the losing end of things. And by the way, it's easy for us to feel the same way. Uh, It's easy for us at this season of life and ministry in the church with all that's going on in our world We see churches that seem to be, for the most part, empty, while streets and protests seem to be full and all kinds of things. We we, we watch what's happening in Washington with the Supreme Court, uh, those those hearings and some of the just awful junk that's said and directed, and we wonder why in the world do things seem so upside down? Why does it seem that the righteous don't have a chance these days? Are we on the losing end of history? We pray, Lord, your kingdom come, but why is it? It seems like we're constantly on the losing end of things when it comes to the kingdom of God. Well, if this is the way that we feel, know that the people in Daniel's day, the Jews, felt the same way. When truth seems to be turned on its head, when man's empire of sin looms over the church threatening its existence, uh, when the winds of adversity seem to be blowing in our lives individually, it's then that we can find ourselves caving into despair and discouragement. And folks, that's why the message of Daniel 7 is so very important for our lives, because it provides the people of God with future hope so that we can live our lives with present courage and faithfulness. You might could say that this passage serves as a prophetic anchor of sorts, It provides us with a grand sweep of human history with all of its empires and kingdoms. But at the heart of it all is this promise that the dominion of our God is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And you see, once you're truly convinced of this as a believer, it's then and only then that you will possess a key to unlocking the meaning of human history. A lot of times people look at human history and say, well, history is just random. History has no meaning. Well, you need to read the Bible. And specifically, you need to study Bible prophecy because history does have a meaning. And what seems to be so chaotic and so random from our perspective is moving right along according to plan from heaven's perspective because God is the divine architect behind human history. And he's bringing human history to one climactic moment when Jesus Christ returns and will establish his kingdom upon the earth. And that's what's being revealed to Daniel here in this seventh chapter. 
So chronologically speaking, all of this happens in the first year of Belshazzar, taking us all the way back to the beginning of chapter 5. Which, by the way, if you want to know how Daniel could be such a man of calm poise, even though he's under pressure in chapter 5, calmly standing before this wicked king, Belshazzar, and telling him, explaining to him the, the meaning of the handwriting on the wall. Daniel's not panicking. You want to know why he's not panicking? Because of the truth that had been revealed to him that's recorded here in chapter 7. Daniel was fully aware of the fact that God is in charge of history. So he's taking us back to something that happened in his life many years even before the events of chapter 6. And he tells us of this vision that he receives from God in which he sees four beasts coming up out of the sea and each one of these beasts are different from the other. Now at first glance, you may think this is nothing more than a random dream that may be the result of indigestion. I imagine all of us, if we were to be honest, we've dreamed up some pretty crazy things. And we've scratched our heads in the morning wondering what in the world all that was about. Daniel's dream is not like that. This is not some fragmented dream sequence without any apparent meaning. Rather, this is a vision that's given to Daniel by God himself. It's a prophetic glimpse of what Daniel could anticipate. At this point in Daniel's life, everything that's revealed to him in chapter 7 is future. Now, from our perspective, some of this has already been fulfilled, and yet there is still a future element that we await, especially as it relates to that fourth beast, the last empire upon the earth that will be on earth when Christ returns. But really, all of this in chapter 7 is a picture of how God regards the kingdoms of men. Now, keep in mind, if you go back to chapter 2, uh, the vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar of the man that was made up of different types of metals, the head of gold and the arms and the chest of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, the feet and the toes that were made up of iron and clay mixed together, all of that was a vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar that had to do with future world empires. God was revealing to that pagan king the course of world empires. The fact that uh, Christ would be coming to establish a kingdom that would fill the whole earth. Well, you need to understand that chapter 7 is dealing with those same empires. But it's from a different perspective. If chapter 2, if the vision is world empires from man's point of view, chapter 7 is the vision of world empires and human history from heaven's point of view. Man looks at what man can build, and man is he's impressed by the work of his hands. He looks at his kingdoms and he says, man, that's gold, that's silver, that's bronze, that's iron. But you see, when heaven looks at what man builds, heaven always sees it in its true light. God sees the empires of men as they really are, beastly, corrupt, warring, full of conflict and rebellion and that kind of thing. So all of this shows us how God regards the kingdoms of men, and yet it shows us how God rules the kingdoms of men. These beasts that Daniel sees are subject to the power of Almighty God. Again, keep in mind, we, we come back to this overarching truth that we've seen over and over again in Daniel. It's the sovereignty of God. It's the fact that God is sovereign over everything that happens in life. 
Things don't just happen around us, men and women. When it seems like things happen just so chaotically, we need to be encouraged by the fact that our God is sovereign over it all. But ultimately, this is a vision how God is going to replace the kingdoms of men with the kingdom of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to know what Jesus meant when he taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, then you need to study Daniel chapter 7. You know the model prayer. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does Jesus have in mind when he wants us to pray, Lord, thy kingdom come? I'm telling you, it's all about the eternal kingdom of God seen in contrast to the temporary kingdoms of men. Daniel 7 explains why we need to be kingdom-minded people. Jesus began his ministry uh, preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What are we talking about when we refer to the kingdom of God? Well, a kingdom is a dominion. A kingdom is a territory of sovereign control. And you know that in a kingdom, life is to be lived under the rule and under the authority of a king. And so the kingdom of God is his sovereign rule. It's his all-encompassing reign over all of life. And so when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, uh, understand that it involves at least three components. There's sort of a past component in that the kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This was the issue that the Pharisees wanted to bring up, asking Jesus about the kingdom in Luke chapter 17. And Jesus corrects their thinking, says, listen, the kingdom of God is coming in ways that are not observable. They were looking for a political savior who would overthrow the yoke of Roman occupation, but Jesus says the kingdom is among you. He's referring to himself as the king who has come. And in his first coming, he's come to fulfill the law, to live a righteous, perfect, sinless life so that he can be an appropriate and only sacrifice for his people upon the cross. So the kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But then the kingdom is coming. There's sort of this present sense as far as the kingdom is concerned. It's coming through the worldwide success of the gospel. What is it that we long for when we pray, your kingdom come? It's an evangelistic petition, isn't it? I long to see people bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. I long to see Christ enthroned in the hearts of men and women and children. This is the, this is the, uh, the mission thrust of the church. In fact, it's why the church exists. The church exists for the purpose of the kingdom, as a vehicle of the kingdom, announcing the good news of the kingdom. But you see, there's still a third component to this kingdom truth, and it has to do with what's still yet future. There is a future element to the kingdom of God. The kingdom will come in all of its fullness when Jesus Christ comes again to establish his kingdom in the literal sense, in the outward sense, upon the earth. So the kingdom has come, the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom will come when Christ comes again. Now, all of this is contained prophetically right here in Daniel chapter 7. You say, now, 
no, just let me ask you a question. What does this have to do with, with how I'm going to be able to get my kids out of bed in the morning, get them to school, help them with their homework, go to work, feed the dog, kick the cat, all that. How is this going to help me with all of that stuff I'm dealing with on a daily basis? I'll tell you how. All of this is so very practical. It informs the reality behind your life. It, it shows you why you exist as a person to begin with. You don't exist uh, for the sake of your career and for the sake of all the stuff that you're dealing with in life. God has given you an ultimate purpose and meaning behind your life, and you can only understand that as you see your role in the kingdom, as one who is subject to the king, one in whom the king himself has established his reign, and one who is longing for the king to come and establish his reign in the literal sense when he comes again. So all of this is practical. It informs the way that we live. It informs what we, what we look forward to the most in life. I mean, what gets you out of bed in the morning, aside from your alarm clock, aside from your daily responsibilities? Do you have any bigger uh, objective? Well, what's the target? What's the bullseye behind your life? Folks, it ought to be the glory of God. It ought to be a kingdom purpose as you're living for the glory of King Jesus. Now, I want to show you some things from this passage. I don't, my time is just about gone. I ought to be wrapping this up, and I've not even got to my main point yet. But notice from this passage, and I'm just going to give you this and then close, okay? Notice the turmoil of nations. Daniel's vision here in chapter 7, it opens up with the turmoil of the nations. You say, what are you talking about? Well, listen. The vision comes to Daniel by night. He writes down what he saw in his dream and explains the sum of the matter. And Daniel declared, he said, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, each one different from the other. Now in the Bible, you'll often find that the sea is used as a symbolic image of the nations. Humanity. In fact, uh, whenever the angel gives the, uh, interprets the meaning of the vision to Daniel, verse 17, he specifically says that the beasts come out of the earth. So the sea then is an image of the churning, seemingly chaotic nature of human history. Just as the ocean is storm-tossed and often troubled, so also the nations of the world are in confusion that's often brought on by war, conflict, social agitation, and unrest. I mean, just imagine you're seeing what Daniel's seeing. You know, you've seen the, the video from hurricanes that come ashore. You know, the, the, the news cameras that are out there on the beaches and showing just the churning of the waves and the water and the white capping of the waves as they're crashing on the shore and coming this way and that way. That's what Daniel is seeing when he's looking out. He sees the churning, boiling chaotic nature of the sea, and it's all a picture of human history. How social revolution and upheaval throughout history, it's given rise to the most evil of empires. Case in point, you go back to Germany in early, the early 1930s. Germany had emerged out of World War I, was war-torn, the economy was decimated, 
dealing with the fallout from the Spanish flu in the early 1900s, which was another pandemic. The state of Germany was in a state of flux. There was just chaos. Well, in January 30th, 1933, the president of Germany, last name was Hindenburg, he appointed as chancellor a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. Basically, Adolf Hitler sort of became the second in command in Germany in 1933, uh, sort of the, the, the prime minister of sorts. But immediately, Hitler had tapped into such a social agitation and capitalized on that, that within the next decade, he would have consolidated power for himself, united all of Germany under the Nazi party, slaughtered more than six million Jews during the Holocaust, plunging the world into World War II. Social upheaval, social unrest, social agitation. And when we look at the landscape of what's happening in our own country, folks, we'd be foolish to believe that things are going to go back to the way that they were pre-COVID. We are a nation in unrest. We are a nation much like the sea. The, the sea is churning. The waters are choppy and rough. And one only wonders what's coming next as far as the world is concerned. Billowing waves are unpredictable. Daniel sees the churning of the sea. It's the nations. The passions of history as they boil over into conflict. But there's something else I want you to see here, and, and really it's in verse 2. Notice that Daniel says in his vision, he saw that the four winds of heaven were stirring up the sea. In other words, it wasn't just the sea that was churning, but the wind of heaven was responsible. The wind of heaven was in control of what was happening. If we were to ask our local meteorologist, Van Denton, he would inform us that the cycle of the wind and the current of the oceans all work together to provide our weather patterns. Y'all remember that from science. You remember studying the hydrologic cycle, the, the constant circulation of water in the Earth's atmosphere? You remember the words evaporation and condensation and precipitation and all of that? Well, Daniel sees the wind of heaven stirring up the waves of the sea. In other words, this is a picture of God who's in control of history. Warren Wearsby says it this way. He says, from a human perspective, the nations seem to work out their own destinies. But the invisible winds of God blow over the surface of the water to accomplish his will in his time. Isn't that the way that it was with creation itself? Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did it all begin? The Bible says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the watery depths. In Hebrew, the word translated spirit is ruach. It's the word that also means wind. It's the idea that God is sovereign in all of his power, in all of his omnipotence and his control. And he's the one who brings life, light from darkness, Life from nothing. In a similar sense, this is God who's controlling human history. The wind is blowing. The waves are churning. But God is the architect of it all. God is the one who is in charge behind the scenes. 
All of this is important for us to keep in mind, especially in an election cycle, isn't it? You know, this political season can best be described as chaotic. I believe with all of my heart that we Christians have an obligation to vote for candidates whose platforms best represents the will of God as outlined in his word. Pro-life and family. Even though it seems like so much more difficult now. It's almost as if when we look in the mirror at our, listen, let me just tell you something. When you look at leaders, politicians, we as a society of people might as well be looking in the mirror. But whoever wins elections, ultimately they're put in place by a sovereign God who is advancing his kingdom agenda. And while we're going about our lives, often reacting to the situations we find thrust upon us, we need to be reminded of the fact that the wind of God is blowing the vessel of humanity to the port that he intends. And what is that port? It's the kingdom of his son. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And what seems like uncontrolled chaos from our vantage point, it's simply unfolding according to plan from heaven's vantage point. So the turmoil of nations. And then that gives way to a transition of power here in the text. And I've got to stop at this. I'm not going to get into this, but Daniel sees four beasts emerge from this churning sea, the sea of humanity, the nations. And those beasts Later, Daniel's going to be told they represent kings and kingdoms. Represents the history of Gentile world power up until the coming of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. But above it all, when it seems like these monsters are on parade, when it seems like mayhem and murder, fear, chaos, Daniel says in verse 9, he says, I saw one who's the Ancient of Days. Thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days took his seat, which means no matter what's going on in my world, God in heaven is in control. Daniel says, I saw one like a son of man who was presented before the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a kingdom, dominion, glory, that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. And folks, that's Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to ask you this question as I just wrap this up. Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom upon the earth, but before he does, he wants to establish his kingdom in your own heart and life as a person. Does Jesus Christ rule and reign in you? Do you have religion or do you have a real relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords who suffered, who died on a cross, who rose again from the dead, who ascended to heaven and who's coming back? And we're one day closer to his return today than we were yesterday. Do you know Jesus? I pray that you do. Would you stand with me, those of you in the room with heads bowed and eyes closed? I would ask you the question, do you want to be in possession of the key to unlock the meaning of history? Are you tired of living with just the 
despair and the confusion when you look around at all that's going on in the world around you? Are you tired of all of that? You want to live with confidence? And listen, you need to understand the message of Daniel 7. You need to have an abiding relationship with the King of Kings himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And know that all of history is moving toward one climactic moment when Jesus Christ comes again. If you don't know him, let me just urge you right now, in an attitude of repentance, confess your sin to him. Turn to him who alone can save you, believing that he died for you on the cross, rose again from the dead. Confess him as your Savior and Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray this morning that all of us, Lord, would confess that we've been unsettled, especially in light of all that's been going on in our world. Political passions are at a high. So many people are at each other's throats. Left to ourselves, Lord, all we would have is a mess. Man cannot solve man's problems. The only solution is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the gospel. Lord, thank you for the truth that the kingdom has come in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the kingdom is coming through the worldwide success of the gospel. Even now, Lord, my prayer is that Christ would be enthroned in the hearts of those who are listening. And Lord, one day the king is coming again. The kingdom will come when Jesus Christ comes to the earth and his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives and he puts down all rebellion and establishes his kingdom upon the earth which will know no end and we will reign with him forever. This is our prophetic hope. Encourage your people, Lord, today with such truth. I pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen.